This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. In this segment, our monthly client roundup. I love it because it's kind of random stuff that you've come across, uh, all related to what we talk about here on Dollars and Cents. And uh, you've been away recently uh, in the province of Ontario, Mm -hmm. which is a little bit crazy right now. But anyways, that's not what we're going to talk about. Uh, what's the what's the deal with Money Mart? What, why are we talking about that? Well, yeah, one thing, so I was away a couple, a couple things. So one is a conference, which we're going to talk about at, at another show. But another is just passing through Toronto, and it's where I used to live. So, you know, it's always nostalgic to go back and watch the Blue Jays actually win a few games this time, as mm-hmm. opposed to lose. Mm-hmm. But one thing that really jumped out at me, Elaine, was Money Mart. And we see them here, you know, Money Mart, payday loans, very explicit about sure. what they do. All over the province. That's right. And I think most people know you know, Money Mart, payday loans, you're going to pay a high interest rate, you know, sometimes four or 500%. The idea is you keep the loans for a short term period of time. So you never pay that much interest is the idea. But a lot of people end up paying a lot of interest because they just can't pay the loans off in time. Right. What I saw in Ontario was a bit of a rebrand. And I'm just assuming, hey, this is going to come out to BC as well. So instead of Money Mart, you know, short term financing, payday loans come to us when you're in a tough situation. It's Money Mart Financial Services. Okay, now that seems... A little um, not really true. Well, it's true at the end of the day because a payday loan is a financial service. Sure. You know, in my point of view, it's really dressing up the old product, giving it a new name, and hopefully, or from their point of view, you know, making people feel a little bit better about really using what from my point of view, is it typically a bad financial product, something that you pay huge charges on, huge fees, huge huge interest. What I've also seen is that they're starting to expand. I've seen this in both BC and Ontario to beyond just the payday loans to installment loans. And, you know, these can be upwards of $15,000, $20,000 loans from your typical, again, what you might have thought as a payday lender organization. Right. And, but with that, doesn't does not come uh, counseling, mm-hmm. uh, advice, you know, assistant, you know, all of that stuff that that you offer oh, right. on a whole other level, believe me, at Sands & Associates, mm-hmm. but still it just doesn't seem very, very um, uh, uh, upward or On good. the up and up, you would say? On the yeah. up and up. That's what I was trying to yeah, say. Yeah, on the up and up. You know, I can't say that there's something inherently unethical about them sure. rebranding this way, but I can not. say for clients, you know, be aware. Just be aware just because something is dressed up called a financial service as opposed to a high interest payday loan, it's the same thing at the end of the day. It's just yes. marketing and just branding. Okay. The other thing we want to talk about, something called Section 160 or se- Section 160 assessment. Yeah. I'm All hoping, to do with Canada Revenue. I'm hoping that most people that are listening have never heard these words from Canada Revenue Agency because a Section 160 assessment is about the worst thing that's out there. I'm going to explain oh, to you why. Okay. Um, and I've just seen a number of these lately. Um, So what it is, is basically a Section 160 assessment gives CRA the power to come back at any time in the future. So forget about a six-year, seven-year statute or whatever, at any time in the future to come back and assess if there's been some untoward conduct. And the thing that they generally look for is, did you transfer property out of your name when you had a tax debt? 
So, oh. you know, maybe five years ago, um, husband had a business and the business was going very poorly and husband took his name off of the marital home. Okay. And at the time he took the name off the home, he received no money from his spouse. So yeah. for no consideration, didn't sell it or anything. Right. Um, and it resulted that the CRA was not able to collect the taxes that they would have otherwise been able to collect um, if he hadn't transferred the home. See, I didn't think that that was a bad thing to do. I just thought that was a smart thing to do. Yeah, and I think a lot of people in that situation might think that they're just being smart, they're protecting their family, right. you know, estate planning purposes and things like that. But any time if you went to a lawyer, to a professional to advise you about, you know, structuring yourself appropriately, the first question they're going to ask is, before we do anything, do you owe the government money? Right. Because if you do owe the government money, all the structuring in the world, all the fees in the world paid to everybody, um, they're not going to be a defense against this Section 160 assessment. Okay. Now, what's also really chilling, too, is it's not only the person that transferred the property away. So it's not only husband in this situation that would be in trouble for transferring the property. It's also the wife that received the property. She could be assessed for the same tax debt. So wow. I, I had someone in my office in Langley, maybe it was about a month or two ago, and you know she had long finished her marriage. I think it was eight years they had been divorced. Um, she didn't know what the heck this was coming like a bolt of lightning out of the blue. She was getting a Section 160 assessment. It was for about thirty or $40,000, and there was nothing she could do. She's like, yeah, the transfer did happen. I didn't even know he owed taxes, but I guess I got the benefit out of it. Wow. And it was years after the marriage, after everything. And that's a lot of money, thirty dollars or $40,000 bill, mm-hmm. and you got to pay it right now. That's what they want, yeah. Yeah. All right. A couple of examples of clients that you have seen recently or Mm -hmm. have seen, uh, which you want to tell us about. I like this first one. Mm -hmm. Uh, Self-employed retail shop owner, which we know there's lots out there, Mm -hmm. and they had to close down thought they'd done everything right. And they did do everything right. Yeah, I was so happy to talk about this example today because oftentimes I'm calling out, you know, situations where someone, you know, maybe made a mistake or is being held to account for different patterns of conduct. And as a warning for you, the Mm -hmm. listener, not to do it this way. Yeah, and not always ill intent, but sometimes, you know, a bad result for everybody. So in this situation, so an individual came to see me this, this year after she had shut down her retail business due to some poor sales. She'd been around for just over two years or so. And as we all know, retail's really tough business, especially with Amazon, everything going online. There's, you know, Toys R Us and big retailers like Sears. They've really had a tough time this year. So you can imagine a small retailer. Um, She found herself injecting more money into the business each month with no end in sight. And usually this is where the story gets bad because it's where the person realizes they should turn off the tap, but they don't. Right. They get so emotionally attached. And I can imagine, you know, you're attached to your business, it's your baby, and you believe if you can just weather through the tough part of it, you're going to be fine again. You'll be a hero at the end of the day. She didn't fall into that trap. Thank God. Yeah. Yeah. So what she realized was, you know what? I could have the most optimistic projections in the world, but every month I'm injecting money into this business and eventually I'm going to be out of money. So what happened was she had set herself up as a corporation. So it provided some legal separation between her and the business. So most people, when they set up as a corporation, they think, okay, if I've got to shut the corporation down, at least I'm not going to have to deal with any of the personal debts. And that's the theory there. But the practice is that most of the time, if you have a corporation, you have to personally guarantee various debts. Okay, so that's the difference. Because it sounds like a good idea, Mm -hmm. and probably lots of people do it. Oh, yeah. But the guarantee sounds like that's the stickler. In almost every case, the separation that you want to happen by setting up a corporation, especially if it's a new business, what bank is going to loan money to a new corporation with no history, no assets? They're going to want you to sign for it. And what's almost always the even bigger problem sometimes is the landlord. 
what landlord is going to sign a multi-year lease with a new corporation without getting the principles behind that to sign on. Sure, makes sense. So that was the situation here. So um, she had came to see us. The business has been shut down. She had done all the CRA filings up to date, sold off um, the assets of the business in a proper way and paid off the government. But she was getting continual harassment from the business creditors that she had personally guaranteed. Okay. Which And they're allowed to do that. Exactly, yeah. yeah. They can say, you know, we went after the business, the business is shut down, we've got you signed on the dotted line, so now we want to be paid. Okay, so how did it all resolve, get resolved? Well, so we came. she came in to see us, and obviously we go through all of the options here. Now, she's clearly someone, you know, good head on her shoulders, knew yeah. where she's going, wants to be very successful in future life, and not that a bankruptcy would mean that she could never be successful in future life, but she really wanted to avoid that. She wanted to avoid the stigma of a bankruptcy, um, and she wanted to see if there's something she can do to, to restructure things, having wound everything down in a very appropriate way. Right. She had no assets that she would have lost if she went into bankruptcy. The only thing she had were some personal items, some household goods, some clothing. Again, everything had been injected into the business, more or less. Yeah. Um, she also had an RRSP, which, thank God, she didn't cash in. Yeah, because we know that's not... That's not the thing to do. Don't Mm -hmm. touch that RRSB. Right. And the situation when she came to see me, so the business has been shut down. She had found new employment. You know, she was able to pay rent on a monthly basis, but she wasn't able to pay much on her debt. She was earning just over $2,000 per month, which in the lower mainland, that puts you below the low income guideline for a single person household. Yeah, yeah. Now, what was interesting in this situation is there was a family member who was willing to help out and provide a small lump sum payment uh, with the idea of trying to settle these debts for you know a portion of the amount outstanding with a single payment. Okay. So when we looked at the situation, she had $24,000 of total debts. Uh, it was mainly to a couple of credit card companies. And what was great in this situation too is she had conducted herself so appropriately through the whole thing, was honest with everybody every step along, that the landlord actually decided not to pursue on the personal guarantee. Wow. And that doesn't always happen. It very seldom happens. Right? So, yeah. Very seldom. And, and you can imagine, you know, if you go three or four months delinquent, you force the landlord to change the lock, start to sell your stuff, they're not going to be very willing to work with you. Yeah. But if you're open, transparent, honest every step of the way there, um, sometimes you can get a good result, which is the landlord agreed not to pursue the personal guarantee, said I'm going to try to re-rent this as quick as I can and probably my damages won't be that much. But he could have really dug in his heels there. So the landlord had backed away, but we still had about 20 $4,000 of consumer debt. Which is a lot. Mm-hmm. More than she was able to handle. She would have been paying that off for a long time at $2,000 a month income. Right. So what did we do? Yeah, what did you do? We filed a consumer proposal. Right. And for a lump sum payment of $6,000 on the 24000 so literally a quarter of the debt outstanding. Which is what happens when you do a consumer proposal. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't won't say it always happens that it's just a quarter, but it's mm-hmm. Often, that's the case. That's right in the ballpark. It can be as low as, you know, 20 cents on the dollar or thereabouts. It can be as high as, you know, 80 or 90 cents on the dollar if you have a lot of assets and a lot of income. But in this case, we could show bankruptcy. If the person were to file for bankruptcy, nobody gets anything back. Her income is low. There's no assets that would be seized. So here's a proposal offering to pay back one quarter of the debt. No interest, no additional charges. Creditors, do you accept it? And 100% unanimous, they accepted the proposal. Oh, she's so responsible, my goodness. <laughs> because yeah. not everybody would do that. Often you'd go, no, let's do the bankruptcy and be done and 
so forth, right? But she mm-hmm. didn't. Oh, yeah. Everybody's different. And, you know, yeah. a lot of things go into everyone's situation. Exactly. Um, but, you know, I was really proud as an advisor on the outside, just saying, you know, this is someone who really saw the writing on the wall, um, understood I'm going to feel some pain, but I'm not going to try to put undue pain on everybody else. Let's just try to try to be fair here. And what I thought was very brilliant, too, is I sometimes deal with folks where there is a family resource that can do a lump sum payoff. You know, they can help them get out of debt, uh, but they go and they pay off 100 cents in the dollar. Right. Or they say, hey, I'm going to pay off half half of the debt, then you just keep making payments on the other half and the interest accumulates, so on and so forth. Exactly. So if there's any third parties that are out there, if someone in your family is in trouble with debt and you're thinking of bailing them out, do it through a consumer proposal because to your point, Elaine, they'll get the counseling, they'll get the financial rehabilitation and you'll also get the best bang for the buck there. You'll get the best possible reduction in the debt that's fair and legal. It's nice too because, uh, you know, you entitled this this segment that she did everything right and and she did like all the way through to the end, which is which is pretty cool. Yeah, I was really happy to talk about this because I think sometimes people make assumptions of folks that go into bankruptcy or do consumer proposals that, you know, they haven't followed everything to the letter. This person exactly is the person that's honest, but unfortunate, they deserve to get the fresh start. Yeah. So listen, if any of this story uh, resonates with you, if there's situations that we talked about, it feels familiar, either for yourself or someone else, all, this is what you need to do, and it's very easy. First, go to the website for Sands and Associates, uh, sands-trustee.com. Uh, they've got there's a ton of information on the website. Or give them a call, 1-800-661-3030. Get that free consultation and to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Now, I'm going to tell you that this next segment is called Insights from Annual Insolvency Conference, and I don't want you to switch your channel and turn the radio (laughs) off. It sounds like, oh my God, but some really good information. Mm -hmm. And these people, these trustees, they take a look at the way things are unfolding in people's lives and on a big scale, and there's lots of great information mm-hmm. that you've sort of gleaned from the conference, and uh, um, I know you're going to tell us about it, and I think it's great. So it was... I can nice. recommend it without reservations to anybody, just very beautiful province, lovely people, great food. Yeah, I really can't complain about anything there. Summer, spring, and fall, not necessarily during the winter. Yeah, they didn't talk much about the snow, but I understand (laughs) it does come. Um, And this was a three-day conference, and it's for every trustee in Canada. There's about a thousand trustees all across the country, about 100 to 200 or so get together every year for professional development and, you know, to share best practices and things. And out of the three full days there, I picked the 10 most impactful minutes. And that's what we're going to talk about today is the best insights that I got from the conference so the folks don't need to go and attend for three days. They can listen for the next few minutes and get the same value. Perfect. Mm-hmm. So first, right off the bat, I always care about how our economy is because, mm-hmm. and I think one of the issues for me is that you get different stories from different people. Like you really have to look at the sources of the information. That's right. So you got it from these, from this um, conference. Uh, what mm-hmm. did you find out? Yeah, so this was with Douglas Porter, who's the head economist for the Bank of Montreal. Okay. Um, and he spoke for a solid hour. And if I were to summarize it in a sentence here, it's the economy is still strong, but for how long? Right. And that's what everyone's wondering here. Um, you know, essentially, we've got the largest or longest um, sustained bull market since World War II. 
Mm-hmm. And what a bull market means is essentially it's a rising market. So it's, you know, every year the stock market goes up a little bit, so on and so forth. A bear market is where there is a, cor- a correction. Right. So if you've got a bull market, it usually means that the economy is prosperous and it's expanding. So jobs, um, our dollar you know, against the world isn't too bad, like mm-hmm. all of those things. All of those indicators have been positive, you know, but for such a long period, and we all know either something's going to continue forever or it's going to stop. And, and we're pretty sure nothing continues forever. So therefore, just yeah. a question of when is this going to stop? And it was actually hilarious at some point in, in the speech because uh, Mr. Porter, the economist, was actually putting up some old magazine covers. And 10 years ago, McLean's, you know, the very esteemed Canadian publication, was predicting a national housing crash and encouraging people to stay away from this insanely overvalued market. Hmm. 10 years ago, Elaine, do you know if you bought a house in Vancouver 10 years ago? Yeah, crazy. You were not insane. No. You've, you've done quite well. Done done really well. Same in Toronto. Yeah, exactly. Same in Toronto. Mm -hmm. But we do know, and we're still getting told that, that the housing market, for example, it can't sustain this. That's right. Yeah. I think I've bought and sold a couple of times within that period of time that people said this can't be sustained. Right. Yeah. So, you know, the the takeaway again is, you know, economist is never going to tell you when something's going to turn. That's predicting the future. But just taking away from it is it can't go up forever. Right. And, you know, we've seen just a number of indicators in the past that we thought were heralding a crash that haven't. Um, but as of now, the uncertainty is unprecedented. So you look across the border, NAFTA negotiations, trade negotiations, there's a lot that could happen. Right. And so you're not actually going to be able to tell us anything, are you? Nothing you can take to the bank, sadly. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, uh, The next topic now uh, is navigating the moral gray zone. Mm -hmm. This I found to be such an interesting discussion because ourselves as trustees, you know, we play an interesting role in that at the end of the day, we're an officer of the court. So our ultimate accountability is to the court to make sure that all the rules get get followed. Um, But really, the client who is struggling and is searching for advice, searching for a beacon of light in the darkness of all their debt, they seek out a trustee. And oftentimes, the client thinks that the trustee is only working for their objectives, uh, where quite often the trustee has to wear a couple of different hats and tell the person where they might be going offside with different rules. Um, So some examples that we talked about were what can take us into the moral gray zone. I mean, you know, it's not quite black and white what a trustee should do in the situation, but, you know, what are some things to consider? Okay. And I like the first example. So Mm -hmm. you've written down, my neighbor went bankrupt and lied about it, lied about it to someone else or lied about the amount? What did they lie about? So this can be a number of things. They could, could lie about, you know, they've got some self-employed income that they never declared to the trustee. Got it. Um, you know, they've got an asset that's held offshore. Um, but the, at the end of the day, it's my neighbor was not fully truthful and he got through this process okay. So am I just a sucker by disclosing everything to the trustee? Right. Okay. Which is a really good question to ask. Mm-hmm. And? Well, at the end of the day, there's a, a couple ways to come at it. You know, first off is to look at it from the law. And what the law says, the bankruptcy is for the honest but unfortunate person. So bankruptcy is not out there for someone to engineer an incredible outcome for themselves, you know, to wipe all the debt away and they keep all their assets and they're very happy and everybody else is sad. So it's based on the same principles as our income tax system, which is essentially you're going to honestly declare things each year and we have the right to audit you. But it's pretty rare that we audit you on everything at every point. So is there a chance that someone could go through a bankruptcy and not disclose things to to a trustee? Well, yeah, there is. Um, But at the end of the day, it really comes down to, um, you know, 
what can the person live with? And that was an interesting part of the discussion is here's some things to try to help a client think through. If they're thinking about, you know, withholding things from the trustee or not being truthful, there's a couple of good questions you can ask them. I like this because it is, if you can go to, if you can sleep at night, then I guess you're doing okay. But Mm -hmm. not everybody can sleep knowing everything or not everything. Well, and you hit on one of the key questions there, Elaine. So one of the the lawyers who was presenting, he said, you know, there's two questions to ask a person if they want to go down that road. Um, If you know if they want to be dishonest and not disclose things is, you know, one, how good of a lo- of a liar are you? Right. You know, can you lie convincingly? Can you do it for years? Can you, you know, not let it eat you up inside? Yeah. Um, so can you lie convincingly? And to your point, Elaine, can you sleep at night after it? Yeah. And we know there are people that can do both. No the, problem yeah. at all. There are, there are, you know, sociopaths that are out there and will always be out, out there. Um, but, you know, I, I spoke to some of my, my uh, fellow colleagues and, you know, the amount of abuse or misuse of the bankruptcy system, it's the low single digit percentages. The vast majority oh. of people are just honest in a tough situation. And sometimes, you know, it can be appealing to perhaps not be honest to the trustee, but on a long-term basis, you, you never win at the end of the day. Got um, it. You know, a couple things to, to consider. Yeah, what are they? Well, you've got to think about what if this, what if I got found? out. You know, if I didn't disclose something to the trustee, but it came about later. Um, You know, if it's a house, for example, you want to say that you don't own. Well, first off, there's obviously a land title registry. Second off, you've probably got a mortgage on that house. And do you owe that bank any other debt? Because if they start to get bankruptcy notifications that say, by the way, I don't own the house, but they've got a mortgage on there. Well, then suddenly you've been seen as dishonest. Yes. You know, one thing to think about it too, and I definitely see this in the clients that I've got is, you know, when someone is feeling like they're losing everything, they've kind of got two things that they can hold on to. You know, one is their family and the other is their sense of Mm self-worth. And you can imagine, can you be respected by your family if you've been dishonest in a court proceeding? Maybe, maybe not. But can you respect yourself? What's your sense of self-worth? Yeah. And the average person probably wouldn't be able to, right? That's right. There is going to be somebody that, uh, that can, but whatever. So what, what I took away from this segment, Elaine, is there's there's two schools of thought. If someone comes in to see a trustee and they start to ask questions that, you know, are very, you know, you can tell the person's got a bit of dishonest intent or wants to explore every eventuality, you can send them out of your office and say, you know what, I'm sorry, I can't be a party to you trying to get this great result. But from my perspective, you haven't added any value at that point. This Fair person enough. may have no ill intent. They just want to overturn every stone. Um, so I think it's important to give people full information when they come to see you. Um, but at the end of the day, we would never counsel somebody not to be honest. We just give them the implications. If you don't disclose everything fully, um, it really, are you going to respect yourself? Are you going to be able to sleep at night? How is it going to play for you in the future? Because ultimately it is their decision and you're there to support them however way you can. I mean, that's you. That's you mm-hmm. personally and yep. how you operate and how your uh, company operates, Sands and Associates. I, I think that's how you would operate. No, that's exactly right. Cool. Now, listen, the, the key is here, if there's anything that we've talked about that is kind of, you're thinking, oh boy, ooh, ooh, I can, I can relate to that. Maybe I should find out more information. Go to the website for Sands and Associates at sands-trustee.com. Or if you're thinking I need to take some action, that's very easy to do as well. And you're not sure where their offices are. They've got a 1-800 number. It's 1-800-661-3030. You get a free consultation, the first one with them, and you can lay all your cards out on the table and see if this fits for you, uh, as well as find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. 
I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. I was having lunch with a a good friend of mine this week, and uh, we were talking about his daughter. And I said, so, you know, she's going into grade 12. What's the next step for her? What's she thinking about? And, and he explained, oh, da, 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 da. And I said, oh, boy, you know, education's expensive compared mm-hmm. to when I went to school and possibly even when you went to school. Yeah. Um, and, she's, and he said, oh, well, she has this amount of money. Uh, grandparents, et cetera, have given her. So um, I just thought to myself as he was explaining it, how fortunate she is Mm -hmm. to have this large sum of money um, to figure out where to go and how to go and what to take. And we know that that is so not always the case Mm -hmm. for people who are graduating high school and entering into university or college or whatever. And uh, I think it's great that you've got this survey that we're going to talk about from the Canadian University Survey Consortium. Yeah, so for today, Elaine, really wanted to talk, let's focus on student loans because it's an issue, you know, most people that go through university, and here's my first point, 50% of people that graduate from university have student loans, have a debt of some sort, whether whether it's a private student loan or one through the government. Yeah, um, and, about, the, and the amount can vary too. Mm-hmm. It can be 10000 or it can be 50000 right? Yeah, the average is about $26,800. Okay, so close, so close on thirty grand. if you can yeah. imagine starting your working life. Not sure what wages you're going to get and you're about you know, $26,000, um, you know, $27,000 behind the game to start. Yeah, and unless you're entering into a really high-paying field uh, that is going to pay you a large amount of money right off the bat, pretty challenging. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a unique situation also, I think. Yeah, and the research bears that out because 48% of students, so very close on half, are worried about upcoming tuition, living expenses as they go back to school. So students who are starting again you know, for their final years of school, they're already worried, how am I going to pay for it? Things go up every year. Um, I graduated in 2002, and yeah, it was a bargain back then. It's not a bargain anymore. Right. And depending on where you're going to school and how you're living, if you're in the lower mainland or the south coast of Vancouver Island, uh, the costs are different now than they were mm-hmm. last year, let's say, certainly in the lower mainland, but especially the south coast, Victoria area. Mm-hmm. It's very expensive to live. Plus, there's a, a very uh, smaller percentage of where you can for mm-hmm. students. Um, and we know that that's the case in other parts of the province as well. So it's a it's a real concern for folks. Yeah. And, and even, you know, Previously, maybe a bachelor's degree was what you needed. You can move on, get an entry-level job and move up. Um, but now that's usually not enough. So, um, you know, we anticipate that student loan debt is going to continue to rise um, because almost 40% of people who graduate from university, they intend to apply to grad school. So yeah. that, that's a pretty significant portion. Um, and, you know, beyond that, so we got 40% there, about 22% intend to go to a professional school. So that's three out of five people, more than 60% are going on to further studies and incurring further costs after they've done university. University, which, which is relatively new. So, and, and this is a very long time ago, but when I went to university or, or college, BCIT, for example, um, student loans existed, but they weren't so prevalent as is it different today than it was, you know, let's say 30 years ago? Yeah, there's definitely been an evolution, and we don't need to go into all the, the gory details, but just giving a bit of a highlight because there is 
potentially some clients that I see that owe their student loans to two or three different, you know, organizations, all for government student loans because mm-hmm. there's been some changes. Um, so student loans started in 1964, and then until 1995, all loans were provided by the banks, and you also repaid the banks. The government of Canada just guaranteed that if you don't pay the bank back, the government of Canada will keep the bank whole, essentially. Okay. So from 64 to 95, not too many changes. Um, in 1995, the government decided, hey, let's make a big change here. So uh, let's do what's called a risk-sharing agreement, where we're not going to pay the banks back for all the defaults. We're just going to pay them a cash payment each year based on a model, and you know, some years the banks will win, some years they'll lose. Um, you know how many years that lasted for, Elaine? I can't imagine. About five. Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I was yeah. going to, I was thinking less. Yeah. Oh, that's good. At least yeah. five years it worked. About five years. And, you know, there's also, whether it's a conspiracy theory or whatnot, or whether it's true, but part of the quid pro quo of getting the banks to take over student loans, just a risk-sharing payment, was the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act was amended at that point that made it way tougher for people to get out of their student loans. Interesting. So I think the government was saying, yep, go ahead. No, you go ahead, finish your thought. So I think the the government was saying, okay, banks, you're worried about defaults. Let's tighten the law a little bit just to make you a little less worried. So not looking out for the consumer, looking out for the banks and changing the the regime of student loans. Again, that's 1995. It's ancient history at this point. It is. But I think what's true today, and it was true then, is neither the federal government nor banks like to lose out. Oh, God, no. Right? Yeah. Still still the same today. Mm -hmm. All right. So Government of Canada directly finances all loans issued since August 2000. Right. And how did that change things? Well, so again, if you had a loan before 95, you owed the government, 95 to 2000, you owed the bank, and now since 2000, you owe the, the government again. So again, if you had three separate loans, it can get a little bit complicated. Got it. But at the end of the day, all student loans that go into default, so if you're ever in trouble, they all get put into CRA. So Canada Revenue Agency is going to have the hammer, the heavy, so to speak, oh. uh, to try to get, yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> to try to get things back on track. This is not a good news story, folks, just, so, just in case you haven't gotten on yet. Yeah, when CRA's got your loan, it's generally not a positive thing. No, because mm-hmm. they're not very good uh, with um, flexibility, let's say. Mm-hmm. Not very flexible with things. Yeah, once you're in default, the flexibility can tend to go away. Uh, but assuming you're not in default, let's again, just kind of on the general here. So, you know, when do you have to start repaying your student loan, right? Okay. Not the day after you graduate. Thank God you get a little bit of time, um, but they do start charging you interest right away. So you don't have to make any payments for the first six months um, after you either graduate, you transfer to part-time studies, after you leave school, or if you're taking more than six months off from school. You get a reprieve of six months, they're still charging you interest, but after that, you've got to start making payments on your loan, Okay. and you've also got to choose an interest rate. Choose an interest rate? Choose an interest rate. So similar to a mortgage, you can go fixed or you can go variable. Okay. Mm -hmm. And their fixed is prime plus 5%. So not prime plus 0.5 or 0.25 or something we'd give great clients or banks would give great clients, prime plus 5%. It's kind of significant. That's crazy high. It's high. Right? It's more than you generally pay for most most debts other than credit card debts or payday loans, right? Sure, yes, yeah. Um, Or you can do floating, which puts you at a bit of risk, but at least it's better. It's prime plus 2.5. Right, and based on history, that would be a a better option than the fixed, prime plus 5. Based on history, yes, but who knows the future, right? right? We know interest rates are going to increase, but it's a question of when and how how much and you still might be very very smart if you if you chose variable for the next little while. Okay, so what happens if I've got the money and I want to pay off the student loan? Well, they'll Can ha- I do that? They'll happily take your money. Yeah, okay. even during those 6 months when you're not required to make any payments, um, you can get in touch with student loans. You can say, "You know what? I want to clear all the interest, so 
note doesn't get added to the loan or I want to start making payments early, never usually a problem to get a bank or, or CRA to, to take some money from you. Okay. Now, one thing that you can do is you can try to re- renegotiate or restructure the amortization of your loan. And amortization is a big, scary word. All it means is how long are you going to take to pay the loan off, sure. right? So typical student loans are about nine and a half years. So you wow. graduate school, you'd anticipate nine and a half years. If you never miss a payment, you'll be paying off that student loan. It's a lot. It's a long time. It can be. Yeah. Um, if you're in a tough situation, the government will help you by increasing that to 14 and a half years. But that doesn't mean that still is interest and all of that yeah, stuff. You'll, you'll you're not pay, getting a, a deal. No, you'll still pay more interest, but all they're going to do is, is spread the term of those payments over again about 14 and a half years compared to about nine and a half. Now, what if, and we know that this happens, what if, what if you miss a payment? Yeah, generally, if you miss one payment, nothing's going to happen too badly for you. You might get, you know, a friendly phone call. Hey, you, you might have missed a payment here. What's going on? Let's just get this back on track. You and this sh- is CRA that's going to be phoning me. No, CRA is not going to be involved until you're delinquent. Okay. So what happens is you're able to miss, you know, up to three months of payments. You're probably okay. It's again, get it back on track. Once you get past three months, then you're in a little bit of a danger zone. And the key point for CRA is they really give you a lot of time to get things back on track. It's 270 days. So nine months of delinquency, you haven't made a payment or you haven't kept up your obligations for nine months. That's when the loan goes into default and it's sent to CRA for collections. And that's when, again, the the bad stuff can typically start. Right. Because CRA is pretty much all powerful. Mm -hmm. They're the the most powerful creditor in Canada. And that means uh, even if I've got a good job, Mm -hmm. they're going to garnish wages? Especially if you've got a good job. If you don't have a job, they're not going to take your wages. Or if you're earning $1,000 a month, you know what? They're not heartless. But if you're earning a good wage and not paying your student loan, you can guarantee once that loan hits to CRA, your employer is going to be getting a notice saying, pay us 30% of wages, literally 30%, um, before they go to the individual who's earning the money. So it can be just shocking getting a garnishee for your student loans. But again, it's after nine months of delinquency. So hopefully you've done something there. You've come to see a trustee or something like that. If you really can't pay, don't let it go to the point where CRA is going to seize your assets, take your tax refunds or garnish your wages. Okay. And the garnish wages, pardon my ignorance, mm-hmm. are they going to notify me or are they just uh, notifying my employer? Usually you'll both get the same lawyer. Okay. Yeah, Fair so enough. The same lawyer, the same letter. Um, so you'll get a copy of what went to your employer. You'll be very embarrassed. The employer typically is on your side, but they'll say, hey, by law, I can't do anything here. I've got to send these guys this money or else it has to come out of me personally. Right. The only way to stop the garnish is either to renegotiate the terms with CRA or to speak to a trustee like myself, and we can help with either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. We do just a ton of consumer proposals where someone's fallen behind on their student loans, they're getting garnished, and they just can't afford the 30% of their wages. They can afford 10% or something like that. And is it fair to say, because I think it is, hopefully I'm correct in assuming this, that uh, a licensed insolvency trustee, they're the only ones that are going to be able to negotiate with Canada Revenue Agency. That's so correct. Let's say it twice. A licensed okay. insolvency trustee is literally the only person that can help you restructure your student loan with Canada Revenue Agency. Okay. So that's a no-brainer to me. Mm-hmm. What about the options? Bankruptcy, consumer proposal, what's the best idea? What's the be- What yeah. makes the most sense? And every situation is going to be a little bit different. And obviously, we won't go into huge detail here today no. on both of them. But what's really important to know is that there is a waiting period. So again, what I alluded to earlier, that they changed the law when they were shuffling student loans back before banks and the government and that, um, there is a waiting period of seven 
10 years since you were last a student. So if you graduate and you're trying your best to pay off the student loan, but you just can't make headway, as long as seven years has passed, that debt is the same as every other debt. If you go into bankruptcy, the debt can be eliminated. If you do a proposal, it can be reduced down to what you can afford. If it's less than seven years, much more difficult to get rid of the debt. It might be impossible. And it can literally be if you're six months, you know, six years and six months after you're graduating, wait the extra six months to make sure it's seven years. You've got to really be crystal clear on that date. Can you say that one more time? Because it's Mm -hmm. such an important piece. Yeah, it's from the day you were last a student and you'd want to confirm this and call student loans directly. What what date do you guys have on file? If you try to restructure the debt through a bankruptcy or consumer proposal and it's been less than seven years, the debt will survive. It can't be restructured. So definitely you've got to make sure it's been at least five years, if not seven years, talk to a trustee and get, get the straight facts. Boy, oh boy. And and once you do that, you're going to get it all looked after eventually. Mm-hmm. And yep. and I think the other piece that I want to repeat as well is a licensed insolvency trustee. They're the only ones that can negotiate or renegotiate or whatever the best term is with Canada Revenue Agency mm-hmm. on this. That's right. That's really important. So listen, if you want more information, this is the phone number to call Sands & Associates. It's 1-800-661-3030. Check out their website, sands-trust. I'm going to assume, and I bet $100 that you've got information on student loan. So much. (laughs) Yeah, on the website, pages of good information. And uh, if you make that call, you'll get a first free consultation, and they'll help you figure out what the best route is to take, as well as find the best office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Lynn is on the line with us right now, and and, uh, Lynn is a a client, uh, and uh, she's going to tell us about her experience with Sands & Associates. And my bet is, Lynn, you either phoned the number, found an office near you, or somebody told you about Sands & Associates, and, and and, and this route is a possibility for you? I started with the number, correct. Nice, nice. Well, let's, um, I know Blair, uh, I often give him the first question to ask, but uh, how did you, what kind of situation were you in that um, that meant that you needed to call Sands and Associates and ask for some assistance? Oh, 90% of it was school debt, going back to school. Ah. Hmm. These were government student loans, Lynn? No, this was me forking out the money to go back to school, and uh, it was done on my behalf. No grants, no government. Right. Okay. So yeah, a lot of people think, well, it's just the government you can finance your studies with, but no, a lot of people, they borrow from banks or credit cards or different things like that, right? And that was your experience? That's out. Excellent. And did you finish the course of study you were on? It's part-time. I'm going back on a part-time basis. Oh, good for you. Good for you. And we know that um, education debt is crazy. uh, And obviously, it was just too much to handle. Is that how it worked out? During the time frame of going back to school part time, definitely. Yeah, and were you still working at the same time, Lynn? Yes. Ah, 
Fair enough. Yeah. Can you give us a sense, Lynn, of, you know, the, the day-to-day, what, what was it like? Because usually there's something that drives people through the door to pick up the phone to us. You know, sometimes it's a collection agent or it's notices or it's just, you know, feeling hopeless looking at the payments that they want and what you can do. Can you give a sense to, to our listeners, you know, what were you feeling? What was going on in your life at that point? Well, the debt kept going. I was going back to school and, and tuition, books. It, it's not cheap. It added up. And it came to the point in time that I had more school to finish and still do. And so I thought, no, enough is enough. I need to take care of this. And so I made the call. Oh, boy. Very good, Lynn, because not everybody's as rational and down to earth as that. Sometimes people get so caught up with... um, what is it? it it's uh, wanting to finish something, not wanting to, uh, you know, take a position that you're going to, you know, change the debt situation or or find somebody else to, to give you some money to help pay for it or go to a bank or whatever. Um, so that's impressive, Lynn. No, this was my choice and my choice alone. So it got to the point that school and, and going back and continuing, it, it Enough was enough, so I thought, no, this needs to get kicked in the butt, and that's what I intended to do. So how was it working with Sands & Associates? They were fine. I had a lot of my questions answered and felt comfortable and went from there. And what was your first appointment like? Because that's often, uh, or can be sometimes, the most difficult. It wasn't difficult. There's nothing (laughs) difficult about it. You go in and you seek information, and information is provided to you. There's no difficulty in in it whatsoever. Wow, you're pretty extraordinary, Lynn. (laughs) I I think I really like you at this point. Very straightforward, right? (laughs) Yeah, very straightforward. And what was the uh, avenue that you chose to deal with the debt? A proposal. Okay, and how did that work out for you? It has worked out. I'm in the midst of doing it now. And what kind of payments and all that kind of stuff? Can and you share you, that with us? Do you mind sharing the total debt that you were dealing with, Lynn, just to give it, give the listeners a oh, sense? Oh, roughly 10000 Okay. Okay. And, and, and go ahead. And the proposal we were able to help you with, um, you know, monthly payments, I'm assuming, were way lower than what you were paying before, but there should have been also a, a good reduction on the total amount of the debt. Do you recall the numbers, Lynn, as much as you're comfortable of sharing? Uh, the bank fought tooth and nail, but we <laughs> per- pursued and we got what we wanted. Because oh, I, I was told that the bank that I was dealing with is, is hardcore, and indeed they were. But Would that be RBC? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They've got a reputation, yeah. Yes, and I was told up front about what they were like, and I thought, well, okay, you know what, I'm not giving up. It's going to go through, and, and we're going to push it to the end, and that's what we did. Yeah, and, and I'm happy we can talk about that example, Lynn, because, yeah, oftentimes, even if someone has RBC debt, I'll say, you know, keep hope. Yeah, I'm going to tell you right away, RBC is probably going to give us a bit of a tough shake on this, but almost always, we're still very successful. So sometimes we have to amend the proposal up a little bit. Sometimes we just need to stick to our guns when Royal Bank comes back with a counter offer and we say, really, this is what the person can afford, and if you want to push a bankruptcy, here you'll probably get nothing quite often they do come to a deal well they were professional about it let's put it plain blunt and simple they were far from professional so uh have having said that i'm glad with the outcome Mm -hmm. and obviously having uh sands and associates on your team dealing with them that was the that sounds like that was the key for you indeed nice uh was there anything that surprised you about the process going in or coming out or in the middle of it no i did some research and it was straightforward and any additional questions i brought forth to the table and, and and it was answered and how did where did you get your how did you do your research Oh, I went to the library, Googled word of mouth, 
And how did you find when you were going online, Lynn? Because I have a bunch of folks who come in and say, you know, if I look up debt help online, I find 101 people that claim they can help me. Um, but re- realistically, when I look through it, they want to charge me fees or they're not licensed trustees that can't actually solve the problem. Did you any, have any of those challenges as you were navigating you through trying to find research. some help? You don't take one specific site and, and take their word for it. You do your research and you follow up and you take different information and with that information you continue on and you go and find out what you're seeking and that's exactly what I did. So I wonder if you were if someone was thinking okay I'm going to start doing my research now how would you direct them you know what should they look for whether it's resources you know type this into Google or when you're looking through you should be asking you know these types of questions how did you go down that that journey because again Lynn it sounds like you were remarkably direct you knew what you were doing you went straight for it but I think other folks are really, sometimes you can have a tough time and can really muddle along for periods. Uh, star ratings, reviews, mm-hmm. actually phoning up the the company in question and asking a whole bunch of questions. And if you're not satisfied for what they're offering, you you seek go somewhere else. Oh, good. And and can I ask? Did you phone other companies and then you know you were happy with the questions we answered, or were we the first person you called? I phoned a few. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And, and what was the difference, Lynn? Just what they had to say. I mean, you you, ha- you have a gut feeling. You know if it's going to work for you or not. Have a, having talked to the, the company or the individual, and if you don't like what you're hearing, you say, fine, thanks for your help, and, and you go phone someone else. So it sounds like you're still in the process. Am I right to assume that? Well, I, in the process of what? And what means? Of the proposal? It's, the proposal's gone through. You're finished. You're completed. Oh, no, no, no. I'm still, it's still in the midst. I'm paying it back. That's that's what, yeah, that's what I was asking. Yeah, yeah. so you're right in it still. Um, how has it changed how you do things, or has it? It's taken a load off my mind, knowing that I'm not going to have the bank. Well, for one thing, the Royal Bank kept raising my interest rate, mm. and I thought, no, that's enough of that. So mm. they kept raising my rate and raising my rate, and so I thought, okay, then um, it's time to go elsewhere. Yeah, I find that can be so tough to take, Lynn. You, you have these, you know, intro rates or low rates or whatever, and then suddenly if you're delinquent, when you really need the help, that's when they start to really raise the rates on you. So it can sometimes double in cases. Well, they were covering their bottoms. They certainly weren't covering mine. They were taking in consideration of what they wanted. They weren't taking in consideration of their customer. Let's put it that way. Has it changed anything about how you do things now? I'm more cautious as to what as as my spending for one thing. So pretty strict budget or how? Yep, strict budget. And how are you feeling? Like, what's your attitude about it all? It's a positive step forward. If people are in even thinking about making a call, well, it's, what do they have to lose? It's not going to hurt to make the call. And if the first call, like I said, if the first place you phone and you find out if it's not what they're offering, you uh, you keep going. And that's exactly what I did, and that's how I came to stick with Sands. It sounds like that would be your best advice to someone who's in a similar predicament. You have to start somewhere. And you either, whether you talk to people, whether you Google, or whether you phone different companies, you it's a start, and you keep going until you're satisfied for of the outcome. I want to thank you so much for sharing your story, Lynn. You have no idea, even the smallest of thing that you've said is going to resonate with someone uh, to take some action to deal with their own situation. Uh, it's so valuable when we get a chance to talk to clients um, who have experienced a debt, and, and it seems like 
I know I need to do something to get out of this and turn to these guys, Sands and Associates, and you got the results that you wanted. You heard the right things from them and were able to take action. Definitely. Excellent. So if any of the information is resonating with you from Lynn's story or from what we've talked about, go to the website. This can be part of your research, sands-trustee.com. There's pages and pages of frequently asked questions, great explanations of different topics and a way of looking at it that might resonate with you even stronger. Uh, Better yet, do what Lynn did. Give them a call. It's easy. It's a 1-800 number, 1-800-661-3030. Get that free first consultation uh, to see if it's a fit and to see if it's going to work for you and to find that office near you. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.